join me, if you will, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. This is kind of a bittersweet moment for me as we stop our season. This is the season finale of our Isaiah, and we'll be back in John next week. And so this is our season finale of Isaiah, but I can't think of a better ending to this season that we have been in in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, and you know, growing up, we did not have regular electricity and power. I know that's odd for some young people in the room, but I did not have electricity a lot of the time, and sometimes it would go out at nighttime or in the evening as we're getting ready for bed, as we're uh, getting ready to sleep, and so we had to go and we had to look for candles, and you never realize where everything is until you have to navigate it in the dark, do you? Bumping your knees and bumping your shin and kind of groping around in the darkness looking for your light and the candles. And then, of course, once you find the candles, then you have to find the matches, right? And then you have to look for those. And so you, you grope around and depending on what happens, you could spend several minutes to maybe just giving up at some point and going to bed trying to find some light in a dark place. And so it's interesting how devastating it can be to be deprived of a sense, a sense of smell. A lot of you who have experienced COVID know what it's like to not be able to smell or to taste. Some of you who um, have Parkinson's or other things, you lose your sense of smell or taste. And so you lose a sense, or when we lose our sight or our hearing, it is very odd. We begin to not be able to see what we should be able to see. Our passage today shows us what it is like when God is left out of the picture. When God is left out of the picture, things get dark, don't they? When we forget who God is, the world becomes a much darker place. Our passage shows us that this darkness is a spiritual darkness, a, dar- a darkness that has spirit, it starts out spiritually, but has physical implications. And what's interesting is that this world that we live in seems to be getting darker and darker, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but news from family members, watching the, the news on TV, it's just nothing but darkness, spiritual darkness and sorrow. Loss of family members with COVID, there's been an uptick in people who know someone who has passed away. There's an increasing number of people that are dying. Um, There's a fear. There's a sense of of heavy fear over the land. People are scared to go outside. People are scared to talk to you. People don't want to smile because they have to wear a mask. And our children are now seeing the effects of this. Uh, If you talk to a speech therapist, ask them if there's an uptick in their cases. Because... So often, when you wear a mask, the children can't see your lips moving, and they're not learning how to communicate, and so there's a speech deficit that is happening. And so more and more, connections are being dissolved. People have what they used to call uh, Zoom fatigue from uh, doing too many Zoom meetings. And so we see this darkness in the world. This is is, is heavy on our land today, currently. But that was also the case before the coming of Christ. And in Isaiah, where we are... 700 years before the coming of Jesus, they were in a dark, dark place. The people had rejected their God. He had rejected the word. 
and they had been worshiping false idols, not too far from our current situation in the West. So our, our world seems to have this ever-expanding kingdom of darkness. There's a rise in crime, lust, theft, moral depravity, suicide rates are going up, um, crime in all the cities, war, fear, mental issues, drug and alcohol addictions, fentanyl um, abuse, and then death from fentanyl is up. And we see this overdose going on. And then there's spiritualism and occultic practices. Uh, Halloween has become a much, much darker holiday as time has gone on. People um, are really looking at witchcraft. If you watch Netflix, everything is about witches and wizards. And even Mickey Mouse has the Wizard of Diz, and they have all this stuff about witchcraft and magic. And so the world has gone darker and darker. Even Clarabelle says she's a good witch. And so now we have much more and more information about this darkness, and it's seeming to spread like never before. And maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm getting cynical in my old age as I grow. Uh, but it does seem that things are getting darker. But we have this darkness in our own hearts. How many of you have felt colder towards your neighbor, less inclined to go out of your way to help somebody? How many of you have, have really not even wanted to bother going to the store and greeting people or going out of your way to do something for somebody else? There's a darkness that seems to be in our own hearts that is uh, making it harder and harder to love those around us, to be caring about those around us. And so in the midst of this, this, this unbelief and this distrust of God, we forget to remember the promises of God. But into this darkness, our passage brings light. And that's what we're going to dwell on today is the light that shines in the darkness. Post tenebris lux as the Latins say, and we'll explain that more as we go. Let's go ahead and read our passage. Chapter 9, starting in verse 1 of Isaiah. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoiced at harvest time and as they rejoiced when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling blood, every tra trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garment of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us and a son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it. His justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word, this message of light and hope that shines into a dark place. Father, I pray that if there is 
people here who are experiencing a heavy darkness from the, the wares of this world, the, the grief and the loss that so happens to us, that you would shine into their hearts and provide them comfort, you would provide to them some joy, that you would lift them up in this dark time. Father, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you've given us. We thank you for our Christmas season that has been so special, where we have dwelt on this image of the coming King, this Emmanuel, this God with us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his mercy, his willingness to humble himself and come in the form of man. God, we thank you for the Spirit that comforts us, the Comforter. Father, we pray that you would be with us today, be with us this morning, Emmanuel, and that we would seek to know you better, that we would be encouraged by your word today. Father, guide us and keep us this week and this coming year, that we would be a people who seek to share the light that we have with us, that we share you with those around us. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. God is so for us that he is going to give himself to us. That is the theme of Christmas, isn't it? That's what we talked about on Christmas Eve. That's what we talked about basically for the last couple weeks. Emmanuel, meaning God with us. As Isaiah has over and over again, uh, over and over again done, is pointed to this Christ, this Savior. And he has given us a lot of depictions, but we haven't really automatically seen who this, this child is going to be. It's been a developing thing over time. It's like a story that, that develops and adds flavor to the character. And so that's what Isaiah does. He slowly brings out this Messiah. It's not until Isaiah chapter 53 that we see really that this, this servant, this Jesus, is going to be a suffering king, one who suffers for us. And so we see that this is coming Jesus. He gives himself to us. The Gospel of John opens with some of the most powerful words of that I, I think have been, ever been written. John 1 through 5, I'm just going to read it again. I know we read it already. Gary did a great job. But it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, nothing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about how Jesus coming in the form of a baby was an invasion. It was D-Day, and we have victory over Europe coming. D-Day has happened, but we're still waiting for the final conquest of the darkness. John seems to understand Isaiah in light of Christ. Over and over again, we see John and all the New Testament writers pointing back to the Old Testament and saying, look, this is Christ. Christ in the old. He is coming. This is the one we are anticipating. And John seems to understand it in such a way that he says that there was overwhelming darkness in the land. At the time that Jesus came, there was darkness. And so we have verse 1, darkness. Verse 1 of our passage says that nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land. Man, that is some pretty graphic language, Isaiah. The gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the future, so now he starts talking forward, he will bring honor 
to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to the Galilee of the nations. Now I could get you a map and show you where we're talking about, but how many of you know what Isaiah is pointing to right now? Where is Isaiah talking about? The birthplace where Jesus came from, right? Galilee of the nations. And then Jesus went down to Bethlehem to be born. And what we see is that this light is going to come by way of Galilee. So when Herod asked them, where is this child going to be from? They all got together and they told him, it's going to be here. It's going to be in this place. And so what does Herod do? He gets a group together and they murder all the children. But where does Jesus go? Egypt. Why does Jesus go to Egypt? To get away, right? That's one thing. But because the prophecy says that he's going to bring salvation from Egypt. This is amazing, the interconnection here. So Isaiah, up until this point, shows the darkness coming on the land. And then we have hope. Hope is coming. The darkness that overwhelms the land will be pushed back. Matthew 4, 12 through 17, quotes this passage. And it says this, When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went in to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light, and for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So we have this king that's coming. This king is going to bring hope. He's going to be good. But we already have a king, don't we? King Ahaz in Isaiah. King Ahaz was wicked. King Ahaz was not using the wisdom of the Lord. And so King Ahaz is contrasted with this new coming king. This new coming king is going to come from the north. Remember, King Ahaz is the king of Judah, which Jerusalem, so the southern part. So the northern part of Israel is going to have this king from the line of David that's going to come. Guess what? Um, it's not the most respected land. Galilee was not known for cultured society. It is not the uh, northeast of the world, according to them. It's not the Phoenix. It's probably more like the Bisbee or the Sierra Vista of the, uh, the area. And so Galilee is not considered the uppity area. In fact, it's probably the least desired area because this is where the invasion forces come through. This is where culture has begun to mingle with the, the temple worship. This is where the people of Israel have begun to mingle with the local populations of invading forces. Galilee is not considered the cream of the crop. And we know fishermen also were not considered to be the best of people. And so this area, which is so often conquered by invading armies and settled by foreigners, is the location where Jesus Christ comes from, an area that the Romans and King Herod were spending money to improve. And there was a need for construction workers around Galilee and Capernaum. So it's interesting that this area that is not considered great by the Israel standards became an important point for the Romans. So the Romans began to build aqueducts. They began to build 
um, mosaics in the flooring and the walls, and they, they begin to have people settle there. And it was an area that needed construction. What was Jesus' dad's profession? Carpenter, construction worker. He was needed from this area. God the Father planned and accomplished his mission by orchestrating history to do, exact, to do exactly what he promised. None of this took God by surprise. 700 years before, there's predicted that this weird rural land was going to be a place of this coming king. And over the next 800 years, God executed his plan to make this happen. God's providence is the theological term we like to throw on this. God planned this history. We, uh, we get great comfort from this. Think about this. God, from before the foundation of the world, planned this rescue mission with every detail. Every single detail had to be accomplished for this coming king, for this Messiah. And so God intricately planned the location. He planned how people are going to move, what is going to happen, that Herod would go ahead and make some decree. Caesar Augustus would make a census. And there would be people would move down south into Bethlehem where he would be born. He would then have to run away to Egypt, come back out of Egypt. And instead of going back to Bethlehem, where would he go? Up to Galilee where there was construction work for Joseph. Over and over again, we see intricate details for the coming birth of Christ. Every detail is planned. This glorious truth should give us unspeakable and unshakable hope. Christians are not people groping for hope. In the dark, we're not looking for the candles because the candle has been lit for us. It is here before our faces. Many of us are just too blind to see it. We have hope because we know that God is in control of history. He has displayed his full brilliance to us. Man, we as Christians should have be the people with the biggest faith because we have seen the most. What would it take for the people of Isaiah's time to understand that this Jesus is coming? What would it take? It would take a lot because they haven't seen Christ come. Now, they did have who? Moses. And what did Moses do? Brought them out of Egypt by the hand of God. So they should have some trust. But once again, we see this intricate detail planned and perfected through Jesus Christ. When the tire goes flat on your way to work, when the hot water heater goes out, when you stub your toe again, when you drop all the cookies on your way to the Christmas table and the dogs grab them. God is working all these things together for your good as a Christian. That good is growth in faithfulness to Him. That good is growth in faithfulness to Him. Do you understand that? When bad things happen to you, things that are inconvenient, God has a purpose for them. These are not accidents in your life. There's reason that God has orchestrated all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. God loves his people so much that he wants to grow your faith. And so when misery strikes, when grief happens, when those inconvenient things that are constantly just picking at your little heart happen, you can have hope, you can have faith, you can have trust, that God is working this for your good. It could be that he wants you to not like the world so much. Maybe you are too addicted to cookies, and so God removed those from your temptation. Maybe 
It's because he wants you to trust that he has a better plan for your situation. There's many reasons why God allows these bad things to happen to us, but they are not outside of his control. We could say with, Matt, with Matthew in Matthew 4.16, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Into this darkness comes light. Verses 2 through 5 show what I like to call the dawn. It is the dawn of the period. Not only was there darkness, now dawn. How many of you have seen a sunrise? Just let's do a show of hands. That uh, way I know who sleeps, who likes to sleep in too long. If you've ever seen a sunrise, you know that you see just a little bit of light coming up over the mountain or over the hill, and it begins to, to slowly expand. And that's what we see in this passage, and it's in poetic form. It's, uh, it's, it has met metaphorical and descriptive language. It's, uh, it rhymes, it has connections, and it has rep repetition. And so as we read through this next bit, I want you to notice that there is this great light that brings joy. So where does joy come from? Where does this light come from? Verse 2 says, well, I don't even know why I was there. Verse 2 says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you, and they rejoice at as they rejoice at harvest time, and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils. Just as dawn starts with the sky lightening slowly, little by little, so the light coming into the world seems to slowly reveal what is happening. As the light begins to get brighter and brighter in in the dawn so you are able to make out more and more things in more and more detail. And that's what we see with the coming of Christ. So now light is in the world. We as Christians have to recognize that this is um, 2,800 years before, or, you know, before us. So here we are now looking back, and we see the light of Christ shining back onto this darkness that they were living in. And so the light is here. So what is going on? It says that... You have enlarged the nation. What could that possibly mean? To enlarge a nation. How does a nation get bigger? Having more babies? Immigration? Bringing in people? Grafting in maybe a Gentile nation? Possibly enlarging the nation? The nation is enlarged by the grafting in of the Gentiles. The joy of this light brings rejoicing and celebration of good things. It, salvation is not only for the Jews. Salvation is now available to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, to those who were not formerly part of God's people. We are now added to the people. I like how Paul picks up this theme of not walking in darkness, but walking as children of the light. He tells the Christians that he writes to, don't walk in darkness darkened by your, your sinfulness in your, in your mind, but now walk as children of the light. He emphasizes that we are now to walk in the light, to walk in light of Jesus Christ. We don't have to wonder about what's going on in the world. We know that Christ has come and has a plan. Paul um, picks that theme up. So not only do we have the addition of good things, the enlarging of the nation, the, the, what seems to be almost a conquest that has happened, 
We have the removal of bad things in verses 4 through 5. Verse 4 says, For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. There's a removal of bad things here. There are two historical references in the vocabulary in this passage that you have to know. First, Egypt with its oppressive yoke. When, when, we, when we read in Exodus, we recognize that there was an oppressive yoke placed on the people of Israel. And so the Egyptians, this word for oppressive yoke was, was pointed to something the Egyptians were doing. So this oppressive yoke of their enemies is shattered. The rod and staff is, is the discipline by the foreign rulers. It is broken. Salvation comes from the Lord. So if you were a Jew and you were reading this or hearing Isaiah preach this sermon to you, you would hear him say oppressive yoke and your mind would go back to captivity in Egypt because that's essentially what's going to end up happening to the people of Judah. They are going to be under captivity. Who is going to save them? God is going to save them. Just like he did in Exodus. Just like he did with the Egyptians. And so they have a, a reference point to understand this. The second thing you need to know is verse 5. Verse 5, or the end of verse 4 says, um, just as you did on the day of Midian. The defeat of Midian, as recorded in Exodus chapters 6 and 8, reference, or 6 through 8, reference the day of Midian. is very interesting. It's, it's, it's kind of important to understand this passage. Midian was defeated by a judge named Gideon. And do you remember how Gideon defeated the Midianites? God told him to select just a few people to go, 300 warriors to fight this massive nation that was going to war against them. And what did they bring with them to go into this battle? Jars and a lamp. And they were to put their lamps in the jars, keep them hidden, and then they were supposed to break the jars and show the light. And the light was going to shine, and they were going to yell, and the enemy was going to be defeated. That was it. They were going to confess with their mouth, and light was going to shine, and they were going to... No, I'm just kidding. They, they yelled out and defeated the enemy. Well, who did the defeating? God. The, the, they did not have to raise their swords to battle. So once again, we have two references here to God bringing the salvation. God bringing the victory. God is going to destroy the enemies, 300 against that vastly bigger army. But do you remember what he delivered? Anybody? This is a trivia pursuit game. Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. Do those names sound familiar? Zebulun and Naphtali? It's all connected. This is not an accident. So all the way from Exodus, we already have God working things to have as a reference point for Isaiah here in our passage, which then again points to a further story with Jesus. Over and over again in Scripture, we have this connectivity between what God is doing. God was the one, obviously, that who destroyed the enemy and saved them. No human glory brought forth this burst of light, this smashing of the lamps and the jars, all these are fascinating connections. There are three aspects of suffering that is mentioned in this coming deliverance, and I want to go over these pretty quickly. First, you have the yoke of oppression. 
So when it talks about this oppressive yoke, that means that they are suffering or they are enduring hours of long labor. They are slaves. They are captives. So the first is the, the, the yoke of oppression, the burden that comes with being a slave. Over and over again, the New Testament writers talk about us being a slave to sin, chained to sin. Our sin enslaves us. Then the second thing, the second type of suffering we see is that there's a rod on the shoulders, which means it is a suffering that is inflicted. It is someone beating the back of these slaves. So this suffering is, uh, comes from external beating you up, abusing you as you go about your work. And finally, we have the staff of the oppressor. This is suffering that arises from hostility, from a specific taskmaster beating them. So the people of Israel are going to be rescued from these three types of affliction. The oppression, which is a burden, the beating from um, those that are laying the rod against their back, whether it be because they want to work harder. And then finally, we have the taskmaster who is hostile to them. And we see that in here. But there no longer will be any burdens, blows, or abusive taskmasters. That's the promise that, that God is giving. The burdens, the blows, and the abusive taskmasters will be removed. Verse 5 has a description of conquest and climax. And you have the final act. Bloody uniforms and boots will be thrown into the fire since they have been ruined by blood. When you're in the military, if you get blood on your boots or your uniforms, they, they replace them for you. They give you a, well, they're supposed to. They're supposed to pay you to replace them. But you're supposed to get rid of those things. So after the battle, after you've fought, after you've done your job, you come back to your base, your base of your home base, and you get that bloody uniform and you throw it in the fire pit. Or you throw the boots and you burn them up because they're no longer of any use because they're ruined by the blood. And so the war, the battle, is over. The submission of this world to its new king is being described here. Verse 7 shows us that this is a spreading kingdom, and we'll hit that in a minute, um, as, as a, the church of Acts kind of shows us. Verse 15, 13 of Acts talks about this, that God's word was spreading even to the Gentile nations. So far, we now have seen that God has directed history toward this point, that a light will come from northern Israel near Galilee, this light will bring peace and remove suffering. But up to this moment in the passage, we don't see the sun, S-U-N. Or should I say, we don't see the sun, S-O-N. We haven't seen the sun yet. And this is the daylight. Verses 6 through 7 give us the sun. The light is here. This is what the light looks like. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given this is the light that is promised. This promised child is Emmanuel that Isaiah was talking about before. This is God with us. This is the hope of the nations. This child is going to be characterized by being given both Jesus's humanity, birth, and deity given is being described here. Look at very carefully here. It says, for a child will be born for us. That shows human connection. A son will be given to us. That shows the divine gift, the divine gifting of this child. 
Christmas Eve, we've talked a lot about the divinity of Christ and how Christ is God. Christ is, Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. We see that this child is royalty in the highest sense. The government, not governments, the government, look here, it says, and the government will be on his shoulders. There will be one rule and one ruler, and this child will be the one. All the other ones are just imitations of this kingship of Christ. Look at this mention of shoulders again. There's a repetition. Remember when we talked about repetition in Hebrew? That's poetic, especially in Hebrew poems. When it's repeating something, that's how they want to get your attention. It says, this child will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. What was previously on the shoulders of the people? The yoke, the oppressive yoke. And now, Christ is going to take on his shoulders the yoke of rulership. He is going to put the rod on his own shoulders. It's going to be removed from the people and placed on his own back. We're now starting to see a little bit how Isaiah is talking about the suffering that this Messiah has to bear. Jesus takes on this burden, burden himself. He bears our sins and iniquities, according to Isaiah 53. And so then we get these names, right? And we've talked about these names on Christmas Eve, so I don't want to reiterate that. Um, you can listen to it. But it shows us two things. First, that he will preserve and he will liberate. He is a warrior and he is a wise ruler. So these names point to two things, the character and scope of his rule. It points to his power, his wisdom, miraculous nature, and the type of kingship, eternal and peaceful. Verse 7 describes his dominion. That means his kingdom. It says that it will increase. Look at verse 7. It says, the dominion will be vast. The Hebrew language is a little less clear than English. English just sounds like it's going to be a large kingdom. The Hebrew makes it actually sound like it's going to be growing to eternity. It is going to be growing in vastness. It is going to be continuing to grow. It's a huge number that is increasingly growing. It is kind of like how we like to say infinity times infinity, right? We, we can't even use the words to describe how vast this is. It's a growing vastness until the whole world is going to be ruled by his dominion. As the, back, the book of Matthew shows us, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that starts like a small thing and becomes a big thing. And we see that over and over again. So this whole thing, what do we do with this passage? I mean, we, we, we write Christmas stories. We have devotionals on this, right? Everybody, everybody knows for unto us a child is given, for unto us a son is born. And we all know this stuff. What do we do with it? What do we do with our passage? Well, for me, I want to respond like Paul in Colossians chapter 1. He says this, he, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The creator of the universe came in human flesh, and he didn't come as a conquering king, he came as a baby as an infant, as a defenseless child. Not that he had anything to worry about, but he came as an infant. This makes me think of the cross. Jesus dying on the cross 
is one of the most powerful images of God's providence that I've ever seen in my life. Jesus, the creator of the universe, created the mountains that was later used as a source of iron that was later used as nails to be driven into his own hands. Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, ensured the birth of those Roman soldiers who nailed him to the same cross. Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, was on a tree that he had designed and encouraged for growth and allowed to grow. That's the commitment that Christ had to come and die on the cross. Everything happened for this reason. It says, he was before all things and by him all things hold together. So not only did he create these things, he preserved them. The men in the mother's womb, who were later Roman soldiers who executed him, Herod and Judas also. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Our response to this message of the birth of the king is that of worship. Worship. Do something. Don't just sit here and get this information. Worship. We cry out like Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, 67 through 75. John's father, then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist's father. And he prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham, he has given us the privilege. Since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies to serve him without fear. Did you hear that? We have been rescued from the hand of our enemies to serve him without fear. Whose kingdom are you going to belong to? Are you going to remain under the oppressive yoke of slavery of this world? Or are you going to have Christ be your king who allows it all to fall on him? In holiness and righteousness, in his presence all our days. So our passage speaks of the light coming into the darkness. External darkness for sure, but also the dawning of salvation in our own hearts. Ponder this truth this week. What does it mean for Christ to come into the world? Perhaps the end of the year is a good time for an inventory. How many of you who have ever owned a business or were in the military had to inventory something? It is a mess in the military, so don't... don't Use that as your example. But you take everything that you're supposed to be responsible for and you count it out. You number it. So I want you to examine your life honestly. Is there a part of your life that has not submitted to his loving kingship, to Christ's loving kingship? Is there something in your life that you are trying to continue to control and not give to Christ? Do you embrace Christ or do you run from him? If you don't know this Christ this year, I want you to commit to seeking him. Ask him to remove the darkness from your sight, the scales that are blinding you. So this is what we can do. 
Look in the areas of your life where you lack loving obedience. Where are you not lovingly obeying the Word of God? Maybe it's um, in your relationships. Maybe you are doing something you know to be wrong. Maybe you're harboring a type of hate that is not acceptable for a Christian. Maybe you are becoming overly discouraged. Maybe you are grieving more than you should be grieving. There's a balance in our grief. We don't mourn with those without hope. We continue to mourn with hope, but we still grieve. Maybe there's something in your life that is causing you to not lovingly obey Christ. The second thing I want you to look at is what are your habits? Now, everybody makes New Year's resolutions. That's why back in the Army, I never went to the gym for the first half of the month of January because everyone commits to going to the gym. Two weeks, gym is full, and then the rest of the year, it's nice and empty for the rest of us, right? What are your habits look like? Do you study God's Word regularly? Do you pray? Do you spend time in focused prayer for those that you love and you care for? Are you interceding on behalf of your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and your neighbors? Where do you spend your time? Are you a Netflix junkie? Are you a social media addict? Do you spend your time watching TV in order to numb your brain until you pass away? What are you spending your time on? I want you to open His Word and work through the Gospels. If you haven't spent time in the Word in a long time, read through the Gospel of John um, over the next 21 days. 21 chapters, read a chapter a day. And then talk to someone about it. Share this with your neighbor. So as we approach New Year, I want to just really quickly roll out what our church is planning to do. Our church is focused, so we had three focuses so far. The first focus is the pulpit. How are we going to make our worship as honoring to God as possible? That was two years ago. Last year, we focused on church in, um, in, in, in groups, in community. So we, we labeled it the pulpit, the table, and the square. I guess that would make it easier if I explained the beginning. Pulpit, table, square. Pulpit's the shape of a triangle in our picture. That's focused on the worship. How are we honoring God? What are we doing? The second thing is the circle, the table. How are we worshiping God in community? Are we loving ourselves? That's why we have home groups now. Um, well, we'll get them launched again uh, this coming year. But home groups, how are we as a community? Are we loving each other as we're supposed to? Are we caring about each other? Are we entering into each other's world? Or are we just coming to church and then leaving? That was our focus this last year. And this year, coming up, is church in the city, the square, the, the, the square of the city. How are we engaged in our community? And I want you to think about how you can be engaged in your, communi uh, your community through participation, through restoration, through different motives um, of, of communicating. Are you talking to your barber? Are you talking to your hairdresser? The people you run across, do you know where they go to church? Do you know what their faith background is? What is the darkness in their life? What are they struggling with? The people that you run across. So I want you to start praying. I want you to start praying about how you can reach your community. Are you looking for opportunities to share good news in the morning when you wake up and you look at your calendar and you say, I got a, I got a haircut and I got to go shopping. God, give me someone that I can share the good news of Jesus Christ with this coming day and then act on it don't hesitate just talk to them because guess what 
people are going to share their darkest moments. People are going to share with you their struggles. They're going to say, it's a hard year. It's been a hard two years. And people will open up. I tell you, everywhere I go, people share with me their problems. And that's okay, because I have a solution. I have Christ. And I want to share that good news with them. And I want you to do the same thing with your community. So this, this year, make that your focus. How can we share the good news with the people that we interact with? This good news of this, this newborn king, this king, this Messiah that has come to rescue us from ourselves, rescue us from wrath, and give us hope. Because we live in a world that has lost a lot of hope. Can we do that? Can we commit to do that, church? Look for opportunities to reach those around us. If you don't know what to say, if you're scared, come talk to me or one of the elders, and we'll give you some tips. We have lots of strategies, but we also have a desire to see you be successful in this. Also know that this is part of the mission of the church, is to make disciples. And part of making disciples means bringing people in to make disciples. And so that is your responsibility. I can't do it by myself, and no one expects me to. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we, uh, we have before us a great commission. We have a mission to go and make disciples of all nations. So Father, we pray that everyone in this room would be committed to this mission this year. Father, I pray that we as a church congregation would seek to make disciples, to bring this light, this hope to our neighbors, to those we, we interact with. Father, I wonder how many people will struggle this coming year. How much loss do we have before us? Help us to be a people that can help those around us grieve properly. Help us to be a people that can help those around us weather the trials of life with the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, you have done so much in my life through the struggles that I have gone through, and everyone in this congregation has a story that is similar. We have all experienced loss. We've experienced pain and suffering, addictions and sorrow. Lord, we have sinned greatly before you, yet we have been forgiven. There's no person outside of this congregation that has not experienced these same things, sinning and suffering over and over again. Lord, I have a heart for our neighbors. I have a heart for this community. Lord, as, as John Knox prayed for Scotland, he said, give me Scotland lest I die. Lord, I pray that we as a church would cry out, Give us Sierra Vista lest we die. Father, if this church will not be a light to the community, shut us down. Chop us off. Remove us from the lampstand. God, we want to be a people to reach our community. Otherwise, we are wasting our time. Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and truth and then to take that light to the neighbors. To take that light to our community. Father, I pray for those who are, are mourning the loss of people over suicide. Uh, Father, I just got news recently of some, some friends of mine who, who have lost friends from suicide. And we pray for comfort on those people that are, 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 are trying to understand such a horrific loss. God, we pray for the churches in this community that we would band together uh, with gospel truth and that we would seek to be a light to our community and show them the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to be a community that loves and that we would be a, a, a light to the rest of the Arizona and then to the rest of the world. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit. Amen.